Yeah, give him a hand. Thank you, Pastor Haley. Would you stand with me, please, one more time this morning? Good to see everybody. We are looking at today Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and 1 Corinthians 3. This is number seven in the series on Blueprint, been dealing with building a biblical worldview. So right out of the chute, let's just find our scripture and jump in together. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We know that when it's getting into our spirits, we're asking God to help us to not be conformed to the world, but we're wanting to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that comes from the Word. We're building a biblical worldview. Second passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. I'm going to ask you to read it with me. So let's find a scripture and start. Here we go. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. Stop. You see the capital D? Everybody say day. That's the day. So it's speaking of the day of judgment when we all stand before God, the Bema seat, as the scripture declares. Let's, here we go. For the day, we'll just close it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Bow your hearts with me, please, this morning for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Gracious God, thank you for the privilege of being called your sons and daughters. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God. Thank you that you have commissioned each one of us to build, to build a life, to build a home, to build a family. Some of us to build a business, every one of us to build a career, a destiny that we have to fulfill a purpose to which you've called us. We pray, Lord, that you would come in today as a heavenly building inspector and help us to see where some things might need to be renovated as we make every attempt to walk according to the way of the Lord, obey the will of the Lord, based on the word of the Lord. Father, we ask you today as we do this that you, Holy Spirit, would do what only you can do. I cannot do anything apart from you but I'm thankful that I'm not apart from you, that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And this people is in Christ and Christ is in them. Teach us today, Spirit of God. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. Everyone is building something. Everyone is building something. You remember... When you went to Bible school, vacation Bible school, or you were in Sunday school, and you, those of you that had the privilege of growing up in church, you remember someone teaching you out of Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Luke. It's shared both places where Jesus talks about the wise man, the foolish man building a house. 
Wise man builds his house on the rock. Foolish man builds his house on the sand. And the rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And you remember, based on how they built, the wise man's house stood firm. The foolish man's house went splat. Okay? We're all tested. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Tests come in our lives. Circumstances uh, that will, at some point, test the architectural integrity of what we're building. Are we building lives of integrity? Are we making decisions and choices that reflect who we truly are in Christ, or do we momentarily disengage and forget who we are and we make decisions out of our past, who we were before we came to Christ, B.C.? Um, Those are critical decisions because we're all building. We're all either building according to the city of man or we're building according to the city of God. We are building, if we're building by the city of man, we are building for confusion. If we're building the city of God, we're building for covenantal blessing. Today I want to take a comparison and a contrast between two back-to-back chapters found in the Old Covenant in the book of Genesis chapters 11 and chapters 12. And you will remember a couple of stories. Chapter 12 is when Abraham was called and God basically pronounced the covenantal blessings that are a part of the covenant that he made with Abraham. But in the previous chapter, the one before it, it's one that is quite different. And it's really sort of a a lesson in opposites. Very different from how God called Abraham and what he saw in him and how he knew that Abraham would obey the commandment of the Lord and raise his children, disciple them, discipline them in the ways of God. He saw a group of people that had journeyed east and landed on the plain of Shinar and began to build what we know as the city of Babylon. That will, after several hundred years, come to a real place of fruition. It is the area that we would know today as portions mainly of Iraq and a portion of Iran as well would be the biblical region of the kingdom of Babylon, which we know its most famous or its height of its influence was under the leadership of a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You read about him particularly in the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel which prophesied contemporarily with two other guys. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel all lived at the same time, all called of God to prophesy the word of the Lord. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem prophesying to the captives that are still there. Most of the people have been carried off into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple's been ransacked. All of the great treasures of the house of the Lord have been carried into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar and have been blasphemed, been prostituted in the use of... Uh, worshiping other gods. And Ezekiel is out there prophesying to the people in the fields, sort of in between Israel and Babylon, and the countryside folk. And Daniel is actually in the court of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So we've got three different people that are prophesying, and it's during a season of great captivity. And the people of God literally are captive for 70 years. It is More than a couple, I mean, it's right at a couple of generations where they're carried away and and then they come back and their land is restored to them. And without getting this thing too big and flying out too far with too big of a picture, where we're starting today is actually the inception of this place called Babylon. So I'm going to go old school today, pull out a leather-bound copy of my, my Bible, one of my Bibles, and I want you to listen with me as I read to you two passages of Scripture, about just a few verses from both chapters. 
Tower of Babel is found in Genesis chapter 11. This is where you know that we commonly see the dispersion of the various language groups around the world. The Bible says in Genesis 11, 1, now the whole earth had one language. Everybody say one language. And the same words. So we have a same language idea, okay? And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. So I want you to get the tenses here and the, the possessive pronouns. Let's build for ourselves a city. Let's make for ourselves a name. So it's very man-centered in Babylon. It says, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And I'm going to take time to read just a few more verses because you know the, the story, but I want to remind you. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. Everybody say, one people. They are one people and they have all one language. So you're seeing the idea of unity here. It's the power of unity, even though it is a negative story. Unity can produce great things. This is what the Bible says. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. They had to stop because they no longer were speaking the same language. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So you know the story. They're unified. They have a purpose. They have a blueprint. We're going to relate this to our worldview series this morning. And then I want you to see the contrast. Chapter 11 of Genesis is building the city of man. It's building for confusion. Chapter 12, Abraham is looking for another city, the city of God, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And verse 4, and I'm finished. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, everybody's building something. Every one of you that are here this morning um, are building something. You're building a life. Some of you are in the front end of pursuing a career. Maybe just finished technical school or graduated from college. You got an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, and you're looking for a job in order to begin your career, and you've been laying building blocks of preparation. Others of you are past that, and you've already begun a career. You've found a spouse. You guys are building a family. You have children. So you're actually building a literal, natural family. Others of you are making attempts to build businesses, hopefully based on and built on the purposes of the kingdom of God for the purpose of advancing God's cause. Now, every one of us are called 
and are lured to some degree by all of the competing voices that are in the world around us. There are attempts on every side because every worldview has an end in mind. Every worldview sets forth some idea of what it would look like if every person on the planet bought into the ideas that that worldview is promoting. If every person on the planet were to begin to believe and become a believer and subscribe to the ideas, that, that the principles that that worldview promotes, it has an end in mind. It promotes some kind of an idea of a utopia. The Marxist worldview is that before everything is finished, the whole world, the whole earth will be completely communist. And that every nation, capitalism will fall. The great Satan among Marxists is the bastion of what has been in the past the free economy of the United States of America, which has in the last hundred years become less and less and less free. And there is an encroaching statism over us as a nation. When we talk about the end view, the utopia of a secularism, it is the idea of a world completely devoid of any kind of God. It is a world without religion. It is completely secularum, Latin word, meaning uh, of the public. Uh, it means that it is no longer of anything that relates to uh, the idea of faith. The Enlightenment moved faith out of its place, being center to the world, and began to promote the idea of reason, the idea of man's ability to think. And reason was enthroned. The idea of the perfectibility of man. We started thinking in the Enlightenment with the ideas of social engineering, that we could begin to build a better individual, and we could build a better society made up of better individuals, and we could perfect man. And it is a completely humanistic idea. Humanism has in its end that there would be no God, but that man himself would be the standard alone in the whole planet. Relativism sets forth an idea that there will be no more competing sense of any absolute kind of truth, but that each man could make his own choices and that there would be a world where there would be no consequences. 1950s, 1960s, this thing really began to emerge into our public school systems with the idea of relativism with a book that was called Situation Ethics that was released. I remember growing up and hearing repeatedly in my classroom right here in West Memphis, Arkansas at Bragg Elementary School, the idea that all things were relative because the new teachers that were just now coming out of the university at Fayetteville and at in Memphis State at the time and Arkansas State University at the time had been completely marinated and soaked in the latest ideas. Uh, Albert Einstein, the brilliant Jewish uh, physicist, had waited 15 years trying to prove his idea of the general theory of relativity. And when it comes to mathematics and physics, that is a true scientifically pr proven theory in terms of how light works and how gravity operates. But this is what happens Philosophy has followed behind and sort of allowed science to lead the way over the last 150 years. And when science emerges with something new, then the philosophers take that and they bump it over into the social arena. Darwinism came along in the 1800s and the philosophers gave us social Darwinism. They gave us the idea of the survival of the fittest, why certain races were superior to others. And some of the most heinous things were committed in the name of what they thought was scientific and now philosophical truth because philosophy had followed 
the pattern that science had set. Biological Darwinism gave us the idea that we had evolved from a lower species, and so now the philosophers jump over here and bump it into a philosophical idea, and they start to wrestle with these concepts in terms of different cultures around the world, and this very thing became the seedbed for Hitler's revolution in the Third Reich and the extermination of six million Jews in World War II. Because after all, they were an inferior race. At least that's what was the law of the land of Germany. So what they did with Darwinism became social Darwinism when Einstein gave us the idea of the general theory of relativity and it was proven 15 years after he had perfected his formulas. Then here we come, the philosophers come along and they start to postulate these ideas of relativism where there is no more truth, no absolutes, no standards. And Einstein shouldn't be blamed for that because he didn't believe that. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you that the, the irony of this whole thing is, is that relativity doesn't work unless there is a constant, which is an absolute, and that is that the speed of light doesn't change. And so if there is something that provides all of the theories that Einstein laid out with the theory, the general theory of relativity in terms of how light works and how gravity works, and all of that is dependent upon a constant or an absolute or a capital T truth, for relativity to work, there has to be the presence of an absolute. But relativism throws that out the door and bumps us over into this idea of there, are, there is no true truth. There is no capital T truth. And your truth, my truth, and Alex's truth, and Chloe's truth on the front row, and, and Anne's truth are all different. And there is no standard by which we can judge or judge one another. And that since there is no God, because relativism is a completely atheistic idea, and it has for it, a kingdom, a utopia, an idea where the whole earth has completely succumbed to that and we've all begun to speak the same language. This is why it's so important that you know what your children are being taught in a public school setting because they're being inculcated. They're being built into. I remember as a sixth grader at 12 years old in the sixth grade at Bragg Elementary School sitting in a class being asked the question, there are six of you sitting in a boat and there's only enough food for four of you and there is an old priest and there is a young pregnant lady and you have, and this is a scenario and you have to sit down in a group and decide who you're going to throw overboard. Come on, how many of you ever played those games like that? Did anybody in the room? Did, did, I see two or three hands. You remember when you were in class and they were basically asking you to talk as a group and they were trying to get you to do some group dynamics and make a decision about whose life is more valuable than the other's. And the whole thing just really ticked me off and I just objected and I just, I'll, I'll be honest, I was a, I, they had to nearly tape a piece of masking tape across my mouth because I talked too much. I know none of you can believe that. But I talked too much and I disrupted the class and I had a biblical worldview built into me as a 12-year-old and I just said, no, this ain't going to do. We will pray and trust God and God will get us out of this mess. And the teacher said, no, no, that won't work. You have to kill somebody. And I said, I'm not going to kill anybody. That really happened. I am not making it up. I'm not exaggerating. And it just messed up her whole little thing that she was trying to do as a little fresh college graduate with her little theory of relativism. And I just said, I'm sorry, that's not right. The law of God says thou shalt not kill. We're not going to kill anybody. We're going to raise our hands to heaven and say, God help us and he's going to deliver us. Amen. And she had to deal with me all year long that year. <laughs> And, and since then, I hope to think that maybe I've learned how to say some of these things in a little bit better way without being so John the Baptist in the face of people. 
But sometimes when we have a culture that has been sucked down that swirling cesspool, it takes somebody getting up and screaming and going, no, we can't think like this. And the whole point is that this is what's happening between these two chapters of Scripture. I want to do a comparison contrast between the two. You have a chart. We're going to go back and forth between Genesis 11, the city of man, Babylon, and Genesis 12, the city that Abraham is looking for, whose builder and maker is God. We're all building one or the other. And I just want to say this. Sometimes when we're in the transitional phase of being new in Christ, and we're still not yet renovated. We've got to tear out some stuff. God isn't doing a DIY project on us. He's saying, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal. And it's the word renewal there literally is the word renovation. And you know the idea of renovating is you tear something out before you build it in. And I I, I like those. I know some of you just can't believe this. But I like those DIY shows, and I watch the HGTV network, and, 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 those, and the renovation nightmares, and all this stuff, and, and, and how they get in there with those sledgehammers, and they're tearing out those walls, and they're jackhammering up all that stuff, and they're, they're trying to get rid of all the old. And this is what happens when we come to Christ. Sometimes he takes us through a process, not sometimes, every time, with all of us. He takes us through a process of jackhammering up the stuff, the old that's getting in the way of the new that he wants to bless us with. And we've, we've been so inundated with and we've been so marinated in all of these different kinds of worldviews and they're attempting to try to teach us how to speak the same language with them. And our chart starts here. They have the same language in Genesis 11. And this is the power of unity. The scripture literally says they were of one language with the same words. And there beside your chart, I want you to write the word worldview. They were all operating out of one blueprint. They had one idea or a set goal to which they were moving toward. And the worldview of the people who migrated to the plain of Shinar was to build something for themselves and to make their name great as we move down through the chart this morning. But when you look to the right... There's a different perspective. There's a different worldview. And I want you to put the word worldview over there under city of God. Because this is the worldview according to the word of God. And the Bible says, now the Lord said. Abraham was concerned with God's word, which revealed God's will and showed him God's way. The word of the Lord provides the blueprint for which we will build something that will last. It will all be tested by fire. On the day it will be manifest, the capital D, the day of judgment. And if our work stands, there will be a reward. But even if our work doesn't stand, the Bible says we'll be saved, yet it's by fire. Okay? So the whole point here is that you've got two cities that are being built, and it's about the desire of being able to preserve, and I'm going to use a $100 word, Hegemony. If any of you ever were a, uh, an affiliate in a sorority or fraternity in college, you had a hegemon. A hegemon is the Greek word for someone who is your mentor. He, he oversees the discipleship process of bringing everybody into the Greek way of life in a fraternity, in a sorority. When we talk about that on a societal level, many times this is the reason the government is directly interested into the programs that are being 
built into the educational system because they want to socially engineer your children to think the way they want them to think so that they can run a government based on the world government principles that they set forth. Last hundred years in America, we have moved farther and farther and farther away from true freedom into a statist world system in America where the federal government makes every decision for you, what you can and can't do, and where you can live, and how much money you make, and, and, and the decisions you're going to make about your life, and your future, and your family, and your child care, and your health care now, and all of these things that are involved, the choices become fewer and fewer. We are a society with more laws on the books than we've ever had before, but we have less security than we've ever had. And I'm going to explain that in a moment. Thereafter, they want your children and my children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to eventually all speak the same language so that out of one worldview, they can build something for themselves. It is the city of man. It is preserving of political power. It is preserving of power and authority over people. Keep the masses, keep them numbed down, keep them amused. Man, I, I want to chase so many rabbits here because this is opening up this, this message this time, the stuff that I didn't even see last time. And so many times, I'm going to stop and just say this for about 30 seconds. I remember growing up reading George Orwell's 1984 and the idea of all of the choices literally being reduced to nothing and Big Brother controlling everything. And that was our fear. Aldous Huxley wrote about the same time that George Orwell did and he wrote the book called Brave New World and it was a completely opposite idea of Orwell's in 1984, which said everything would be reduced down to no choices and Big Brother would be making every decision for you. Aldous Huxley said it would be the other way. We would be inundated with so many choices that we wouldn't make a decision. Now, folks, you go home today and you will turn on your TV to the choice of about 700 channels. You are inundated with so much of an opportunity to hear the news through so many outlets that it's such we're numbed to it. Are you hearing me? I don't believe Orwell was right. I believe Aldous Huxley was the one who was right with the brave new world. And we've had, we, hit, we get hit with so many opportunities and so many choices that we literally are amused to death. We're not thinking any longer. And that's not anything that God would desire us to be. He wants us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love the Lord with all of our minds. Listen to this. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. City of man, they have one language, same words. They're all being able to build out of that same worldview. They're all agreeing. Now listen to what the Bible says. This is what the church is supposed to do. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The King James says that you speak the same thing. There, there's a move afoot right now in our generation with a bunch of different pastors called the Gospel Coalition trying to recapture what the real true gospel is because it has been so colored by all of these other things out there. Rick Warren said it this way, anytime you put another word in front of the gospel, social gospel, prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel, American gospel, positive thinking gospel, it ceases to become the gospel. Because the gospel does not need a defining indicator on the front of it. The gospel does already speak to every area of life. 
It is a comprehensive vision. It is a worldview that has an end in mind. And the end is the reality of the kingdom of God, which we're all to be building. And too many times the church is over here in the corner somewhere building a subculture and fighting over the wattage and the light bulbs they voted on in the last business meeting and splitting the church over the color of carpet that's going to get laid next week. And I'm convinced that there is a vast body of truth that all of Christians, Catholic and Protestant and Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian and Pentecostal and all of the other Heinz 57 varieties of denominations that you want to name, whatever your heritage is, it is a blessing. You can be thankful to God for it, but not one of them has a corner on all the truth. And there's a vast body of truth that we can agree on that is so much more than the few things over which we disagree. And the enemy can keep us separated with divisions among us because we're not saying the same thing because we're fighting over non-essentials that really don't matter in terms of your salvation anyway. Somebody say amen. Amen. Listen to this. Speak the same thing. Number two, what's going on in the city of man is clearly rebellion. They migrated from the east. It is symbolic of them stepping out to move toward a place of secularization. They're doing their will, their way, based on their own word. And so the whole city of man is about rebellion. It's moving against the will of God. It's doing what God has not called them or commanded them to do. They journeyed from the east. But the city of God is very different because Abraham is operating out of a place of obedience. Everybody say, obedience. Obedience, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Go from your house, from your kindred, from your relatives. He says, I'm going to send you to a land that I will show you. And verse 4 says, Abraham went as the Lord said. So obedience, there is still a blessing on the obedience to the commandment of God. God's will, based on God's word, reveals God's way to us. And God wants us to walk in true biblical faith, which always has the fruit of obedience in our lives. Too many times there are people preaching a what they call a radical grace message today in 2013. And it's a great, big, huge, wonderful idea of forgiveness that comes, but they rarely preach the second part. Grace also empowers you and it produces a radical obedience in your life to the commandments of God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my Commandments, and that's never changed. There's not a plan B for that. That is God's plan, period. And so real grace will radically forgive my past and even the mistakes I make in the present and the future. It's all covered by radical forgiveness. But real true Bible grace will produce a radical obedience in me. It'll start to fuss with me and deal with me and it'll out of a whole new desire and a new nature and a new set of ideas... Because now the law of God has been written on my heart. It's not an external code of do's and don'ts, but now by a new nature on the inside of me, God starts to say, I will bless those who obey me. That's what his word declares. Listen to what happened to Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. Get it again. By faith Abraham obeyed. Get that. Say it with me. By faith Abraham obeyed. So obedience is tied to faith. It's not just a loose confession 
of an idea that you mentally assent to and say, I believe that. But by faith, he obeyed. And he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Oh my goodness. By this point in Abraham's life, he's wealthy. He has an entourage with him. Can you imagine what it was like telling the people, I've heard from God, we're supposed to leave here and go somewhere else? Oh, really? But there was something about Abraham that was a sense of integrity and created a confidence in the people. And so they got up and went with him. And when you actually read when he obeyed, Lot, his nephew, went with him because he believed in Abraham and the God of Abraham. So he went and he obeyed. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, see this in Hebrews 11. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Everybody say the city of God. So we're over here on the plains of Shinar building. Got the same worldview, same language. We're rebelling. But Abraham's doing something different. He's not building. He's not being conformed to the world. But he's building something too. He's building a generational transfer. It's going to be handed down to his children and his children's children. Point number three, I want you to see this. The Bible says in, in Genesis 11, let us build for ourselves. Very man-centered. I want you to put the word in the chart to the left. Under city of man, I want you to put the word humanism. This is the idea right here of re removing God from the throne and putting myself in the place of God. I'm going to make my own decisions. I will craft my own destiny. I am the architect of my own life. It's basically the very spirit of what took place in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve basically flipped God off and committed high treason and said, we will be as gods. We will make our own choices. And they did and they reaped the consequences of it. But humanism attempts to move God out of the picture altogether to deny his existence because true secular humanism is atheistic. No room for any kind of God. We will build for ourselves. And it stands in complete contradistinction to what's going on in, in Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham gives us the picture of what we see realized in true biblical Christianity. Everybody say Christianity. Now, this is the idea where the guys over here in Genesis 11 say, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower, make our name great. But God looks at a man who he knew would teach his children. He knew would build covenantally. He knew would take the time to build into his sons, influence his wife, mentor, discipline, tell the things of God to, inspire them, invest into them. What I, what I want to help you see this morning is it's not just enough to say, I'm going to get my kids to church because they've got a great children's pastor there. And man, we sure do love Pastor Haley and the amazing people that they're uh, involving in the children's ministry of Victory Kids. It is awesome. Or man, they've got a great youth pastor, beautiful couple, Jeremy and Heather down there at Victory. And I want to get my youth down there so they can get involved and get around those other kids. You know what? You're, not, you're doing the least minimum daily requirement to get your kids here for an hour on Sunday morning. You need to be sitting around the table with them on a daily basis, building into the lives of your children. 
When you're sitting at the table and they have spaghetti sauce running down their shirt and they're picking their nose at the table as a two-year-old. Maybe that's too graphic, but how about, how about everybody say that's real? You're sitting around the table looking at champions of the next generation, not realizing that God has given you the precious privilege of investing some courage and some honor and some integrity and some trust in the mighty God that made them for the next generation of leadership. It's, it's, it's crazy, the privilege that God has given us. We're not building for humanism. We're not building for ourselves. But God looks at Abraham and he says, I will make of you a great nation. That is completely fulfilled, not just in a Jewish nation of Israel, but God had a bigger design than that, that through the singular seed of Abraham, which would come down to Christ, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through that seed. That now the nation is now found in 1 Peter 2.9. When Peter stands up and he looks out and he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's talking to the church, which now is covering the whole earth. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As the church grows and goes forth, then the kingdom of God is advanced. Because God looks at one man and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. It's not the man saying himself, I'm going to make of myself a great nation like they're doing over here in Babylon. But God is saying, there's something in the obedient heart of that man by the name of Abraham. He believed me and I'm going to count it to him for righteousness. God says, I believe he'll command his children. He'll build this dream and this vision into the next generation and the next generation after that one and the next generation after that one to come. He's going to catch this dream and this vision and I'm going to make him, a nation. I will bless him. Humanism is all about trying to secure a base of power. It's taking what's in, what's in man's head and in man's heart and in man's hand and trying to completely cover the earth with the mark of the beast, with the Adamic nature. But Abraham says, no, we're going to hear what's in God's head as he speaks out of his mouth, his word, his will, his way, and we will obey. Are you hearing me this morning? Listen, there's a difference in building for confusion in the city of man and building for covenant blessing in the city of God. Psalm 127 says it this way. Hear the word of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What is that saying? That's saying the little one right now that's robbing you of your sleep at night, some of the greatest things you will ever accomplish is taking the time to invest in the generation that's coming after you. Because they have the potential of being greater than, they can be more righteous than we have ever been, or they can be, like Jeremiah says, more evil. They go from evil to evil. Everything that I just said has to do with the choices that I make as a parent. And the responsibility for that is not in the children's pastor, it's not in the youth pastor, it's not in the lead pastor, it's in the home pastor, and that's called daddy and mama. Come on, don't shout me down. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. It's about a principle of unity. They have unity over here in the city of man. They're building Babylon. 
They got all kinds of unity. We can't get our act together in the church sometimes. But listen, this is what the Lord says. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. From there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. If we can just get our act together and we can let God give us a unified word and we can walk out of that word, the will and the way of the Lord in this generation, and we can rise up and love this city not in judgment and in condemnation, but with a message of grace and engage them with the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell them that no matter what they've done, they are not too far gone, but God can change them and God can renovate them. That's the hope of the gospel and that's the worldview out of which we should be operating. We need to be speaking the same thing, saying the same thing, of the same mind and the same judgment that there be no divisions among us as the church of the living God. Number four, it's happening in Babylon in the city of man. They say, let us make for ourselves a name. And it's all about independence. I will ascend the hill of the Most High on my own strength and my own ability. It's the five I wills of Ezekiel 14, Isaiah 28, speaking of Lucifer who falls from heaven because of the wanton willishness of saying, I will be like God. That's the very spirit that man rises in humanism right there. But unlike those in the city of man, Abraham is doing the opposite. It is not independence, but it is radical dependence upon God alone. And this is when God looks at him and he says, because of that, I'm going to make your name great. Not just so you can be great, but so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. This is not about you hoarding up blessing, but it's about you being a channel through which blessing is going to touch the whole earth. And it's through Abraham that the seed of Christ comes, and it's through him that every family on the planet has been blessed because of Jesus Christ. That is fulfilled because Abraham wasn't trying to build his own autonomous self-law, autonomous I will be my own law. That began in Genesis 3 with, Abraham, I mean with, with Adam and Eve. But Abraham is over here going, no, Lord, you speak. What is your word? Where do you want me to go? What's your will? Speak, Lord. I will do as you say. By faith, Abraham obeyed. He heard the word. He obeyed the will. He walked in the way of the Lord. And there is destiny and submission in that, in finding that and realizing that. Number five, and finally I'm finished this morning. This whole thing over here in the city of man is about centralization. It's about control. It's about power. If you find this in a government, and let me just say this, this has happened more and more the last 100 years in the United States of America. It is about centralized power and control. Everything in Washington, D.C. And lest you think that I'm being political, this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a humanistic, man-centered sin issue that attempts to reach into your life and control everything about you. And our founders would turn over in the grave. Men who gave their lives, who hazarded their lives in the Revolutionary War because a group of preachers 30 years prior in the First Great Awakening dared to stand up in the pulpits and preach the freedom that is in Christ. And they stood in defiance of the tyranny of King George. Now, I'm not here declaring anybody in the White House. It happens to be a Democrat right now. There was a Republican in there prior. 
Now, it has nothing to do with political parties. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with color. It has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. But an encroaching humanistic power struggle trying to centralize and control everything about your life. And anything that's godly is not about trying to put it all under one man. The, well, the Bible is one man, but it's the man Jesus. What I, it's not about centralizing power in Victory Church. It's not about centralizing power in a denomination. Let me tell you something. I, I, I regularly tell people, look, we are thrilled to see God bless other churches in the city because if he does, the kingdom is advancing. Victory is not for everybody. There are other great churches in this city, men who stand in the pulpit with an uncompromising word, and we pray for them. And when people come and they go, you know, I like it here, but I just don't know that this is for me. And I go, you know what, I got some friends here and here and here. Try Check this out. I think this might be a, a better fit for you. And, and we, we've never, ever in any kind of way been jealous. We're thankful to God to be a, on the team with some other great churches in this city. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. We are about the kingdom of God. We're not about making a name for victory. Amen. It's not about Mike Smith. It's not about any of that kind of stuff whatsoever. It is about one name. It's about making one name famous, and it's the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Man tries to protect and pull into central power and control, and that's what's happening in Babylon, what's happening in our nation's government. But as Bible Christians, it's not about trying to pull you in and control you. It's about equipping you and empowering you to be all that God's called you to be. It's to cut you loose and let you be everything that God has intended for you to be in your city, in your neighborhood, in your school, at your job, at your work. It's not just about centralizing down here and what goes on in this facility because let me just tell you, this building is not the church. Victory Church is sitting in the room this morning, but when we say the amen and we do a little bit of bluesy this joy and we leave the room this morning, the church, ladies and gentlemen, has just left the building. I don't know where Elvis is. But I'm looking at the church, and the church is living and breathing, and the church is an organism, not an organization. And, and, and God is empowering you. It is not about centralizing down at any location, anywhere, but it's about equipping you and so that you go out of here and you become literally infected and you become contagious with the joy and the love of God and the life of God on the inside of you. And you go out there and you touch somebody who is stuck in the depressing job of making bricks in the city of man. And they're medicated because they know their life is going nowhere. And they're hungry for something real. And they're looking at you and going, why do you have so much joy? And where does the smile on your face come from? And you know, when God builds something, he, bricks are man-made and they're all exactly the same. It's about control. But God takes living stones and stones are all shaped differently and they have different colors and they're not all exactly the same way. Nothing wrong with bricks. I live in a brick house. My wife is a brick house. Hallelujah. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> hey, I just woke you up, okay? She's a brick. No, no, no. Okay, anyway. Um, but it's not about bricks because bricks are all the same. 
And there's no two of you like in here this morning, but there are stones and God takes stones and fits you in to people that just so happens in your relationships many times that have the same interests that you do because there's something that complements each other, your husbands and your wives. It's amazing how God draws together sometimes people that are opposites and he causes two stones that are not identical like, like bricks, but he causes two stones to begin to fit together for the sake of building something great for the kingdom of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? God wants to empower you. He says, I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. As I finish this morning, I want you to know the precious privilege that we have to be empowered and to participate in the purpose of God. It's called the Great Commission. That's not just for preachers. It's not merely for pastors. It's not just for folks who are extroverted and maybe have an evangelical or an evangelistic gift on their lives to share Jesus and the love of God. Every one of you in the room has some place or calling where you as a stone of the Lord can fit into the wall and you can provide an opportunity for people with your own story, your own testimony is the most powerful thing you have in your mouth to be able to look at somebody and say, I once was, but now I'm. And it's, it's no longer what I used to be, but it's what God is doing in me now and how he loves me so much. And let me tell you, that same God who loves me desperately is in love with you. And he loves you so much, sir, ma'am, that if he did have a refrigerator, he'd have your picture on it in heaven. That's how much he loves you. And so with all heads bowed, every eye closed in the place this morning, I just want to remind you of the precious privilege that we have of being a part of this amazing Vision, this worldview, this view of the end, it's called the kingdom of God. And we're kind of on the in-between right now. We're, the kingdom of God is now, it's here, it's right now. But yet there's an aspect to it that is not yet. It is yet to come. And what I'm going to say to you this morning is not an invitation to pray and just to check something off of your list to say, okay, I went to victory, I was touched, I was impacted, I felt the presence of God in the worship. That guy preached and I felt like God was talking to me. It's not just about the experience. But it's about what you're going to do with that right now in this moment. And my invitation to you right now is not just about praying a prayer and buying some fire insurance and knowing that Jesus has come into your heart and kept you from hell in the future. That is so not what I'm here to talk to you about. Because too many times people do that and they pray a little quick prayer and they say a few words thinking that it's all taken care of, care of and tied up in a bow and they walk out of here and their lives are unchanged. Nothing is any different. And they think that they're going to stand before God on the day, capital D, when everything they've built will be judged by fire. And thinking that even if their stuff is burnt up that they'll still be saved and they've got a sad situation that's going to happen. Because the invitation today is not to merely pray a few words. The invitation is to lay down your life and completely follow Jesus. It's to say, Jesus, start something fresh in my heart today. Let the kingdom of God come into my heart today and begin the renovation process. Deliver me from building bricks in the city of man and help me hang out with some lively stones begin to build the wall in the temple of the city of God. Something that is alive, something that's real. 
The gospel will change your life. Very simply, it is that while you were still a sinner, Christ Jesus died for you. In the struggle that you used to have and that sometimes still tempts you. Some of you are in the room this morning. You're in process right now. Walking out of an old lifestyle. And you're struggling with the past that's calling to you. And let me tell you, Jesus loves you as much today as he did when you made the decision a few weeks ago to walk out of that. His love is unchanging. Some of you are overwhelmed because of circumstances that you're facing right now and news that came to you in the last few days, weeks, months, relationships, jobs, businesses, stuff changes. In the middle of all of that, I'm trying to invite you to a relationship with one that will never change, and that is to know Jesus Christ, not only as your Savior, but to know Him as the Lord of your life, to invite Him in and say, take control, sit as the CEO in my life, sit as the chairman of the board on my life. I want to ask you right now, every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. This is not merely an invitation to a prayer. It's an invitation to call you to say, yes, I'm willing to lay my life down and follow Jesus. By faith, I will obey the call of God. If you'd like to be included in this prayer right now, that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. If you just slip up your hand, I'm just, you're just saying right now, Pastor, pray for me. Yes, I've seen several that have gone up. Give you a moment. Anybody else in the room? I see your hands. Thank you. You put them down. Yes. I've seen at least four. Anybody else in this room? Yes, I see your hand over here. Thank you. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that your presence is in this room and that you're moving and drawing us so, God, not to just come to a place where we're confident that we can check it off and know that we have some fire insurance. It's not merely about that, but it's about literally being called to die, to lay down my life and to say, Jesus, I will follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lead me, I will follow. Jesus, start something new, fresh today in our lives. And thank you that the only way that we can do that and get on the right road and be on the right path and get attuned to hear the word of the Lord, to walk in God's will and God's way is for you to get our hearts right. And Jesus, we just lay them open before you. They're corrupt. They're sinful. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. If you raised your hands, make this your prayer in your heart right now. Thank you, Lord, that you're moving in each of these lives that lifted their hands right now. God, we just pray as believers in this room, we pray for these brothers and sisters together. Jesus, Save me. I trust you. I will follow you. Lead me, Lord. Be Lord of my life. Thank you that you forgive me of my sins. I repent and I turn to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me. Empower me, Lord, by your grace to be what you've called me to be. In Jesus' name. Would you put your hands together?